0: This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. I'm going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I'm going to start with 22, all the way to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband.
1: Good morning, Redemption. How's everybody? Good, are you sure? You don't seem confident. That's okay. Hey, um, y'all remember the first time you saw the movie Sixth Sense? You do? Um... Spoiler alert: He's dead the whole time. It's been out for like over twenty years. I think we're okay. Uh, you guys remember this? So, like, you get to the end of the movie and you're like, "Wait a second, he's been dead from the very beginning of the movie." And I don't know if you guys did this, but I like, I went back and like rethought every scene. In fact, I've heard of people go back, like, who go back and literally rewatch the entire film. They're like, "I've got to figure this out. They've messed up. There's some way that you know that they've messed the storyline up. Like, it changes." everything. You rewatch the whole film in a whole new way. That's what we've been trying to communicate with you guys the past three weeks about the gospel. When you get that Jesus and his death, burial and resurrection, what he's accomplishing through that event is the whole storyline of scripture. You go back and you're like, oh, now it all makes sense. That's why this story is in the Old Testament. That's why they said this. This is why the prophet said this. And what's even crazier is you go back and you look at the story of your life. And you're like, oh, now it all makes sense. It's all about Jesus. That's why we've been going through this series called The Gospel in Life. And we believe that the gospel is the center of everything. It's all about Jesus. In fact, in week one, Jamie unpacked specifically for us what the gospel is. He defined it for us. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15. In week two, he talked about how, like I just said, all scripture is about Jesus. And he showed us specifically how. Where where do we get that idea? We just don't pull it out of the air. We didn't just make it up. Scripture actually tells us it's all about Jesus. So he unpacked that for us. And then last week, He talked about, okay, if that's true, if the gospel is really central of everything, how does that actually flesh itself out in your life? What does that look like practically on a daily basis? Well, this week we want to take it a step further. We want to get even more detailed because we want to look at how the gospel is meant to function in your marriage. You may say to yourself, well, that's an interesting place to start. We're talking about daily life. Why are we jumping right into marriage? Well, I'll tell you. There is no relationship more consuming, more all-encompassing than the the relationship you have with your spouse in marriage. There's nothing more daily life, those of you who are married here, you know this, there's nothing more daily life than your daily interactions with your husband or wife. So that's why we're starting with marriage. And also, as you'll find out a little bit later, uh, God thinks marriage is a pretty big deal. In fact, he thinks it's a huge deal. And if it's a big deal to God, it's a big deal to us. And so we'll get there in a little bit. But the big idea for today, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, is simply this. We will strive for a gospel-driven marriage. When I say we, I mean you, you and your spouse, in this church body, all of us together will strive for a gospel-driven marriage. Now, our text today comes from the book of Ephesians. Thank you, Sarah, for reading this morning. Ephesians chapter 5. Now there's a lot of interesting things I could tell you about the city of Ephesus. It's a very famous city in ancient uh, Greece. It's the um, the temple of Artemis is located in ancient Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a very popular city but what's more important than understanding the book of or the, the city of Ephesus what's more important is understanding the, the, the structure of the book of Ephesians itself. Because understanding the structure of this book means you interpret it properly. What do I mean by that? I mean by this. Chapters 1 through 3. So it's a six-chapter book. The first three chapters are really just Paul explaining this majesty of the gospel. What it means that Christ has come and chosen us as his people. And he's dealing with some relational issues, Jews and Gentiles, and trying to help them see, you know, you are all one. We are all one. When when Christ died and rose again, he brought us all into this thing called the body of Christ, which we'll get to in a little bit. Tons of wonderful, beautiful truths. Go this week and read Ephesians 1 through 3. There will not be wasted time. Then he gets to chapters 4 through 6. And 4 through 6 is where he's like, okay, because all these things are true, because all these things about the gospel apply to you, therefore, this is how you should live. And you have to understand the structure of that book or you're going to get it all backwards. And part of this how you should live in chapter 5 is marriage. What does it look like if, as a redeemed people, as people are chosen by God, how does that affect our marriages? What does that look like? Now I understand for many of you who grew up in the church, have been around for a while, this is an incredibly familiar passage on marriage. You're like, yeah, I've heard the Ephesians 5 sermon before. I'm going to challenge you this morning, lean in. Lean in, because we need reminders. Some of you here are single and are not married. Some of you are just kids. I want you to lean in. Because, first of all, you are not less valued for not being married. In fact, fun fact, Paul, who wrote this book, was never married. Jesus, while he was on earth, was never married. So God is okay with singleness. You are just as valued. But you might be married one day. And your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in this room, your parents who are in this room are married and they need your help and they need your support and they need your prayer. And you'll come to learn today, because you're part of the church, one day you will be married. So it's important that we all lean in on this. So we're going to strive to be a gospel-driven marriage, and there's three ways to strive. We're going to look at a, a striving of the wife, striving of the husband, and then of you two together. That's what we're going to go for today. Y'all ready for a ride? Yes. All right. First, we're going to talk with the wives you're going to strive to be a gospel driven wife. That's what I want you to do today and walk out of here. I'm saying, I'm going to strive to be a gospel driven wife. I get this. Right from the text, verses 22 through 24 of Ephesians 5. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you look back there in your Bibles if you have them still? Paul writes this Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. It is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So of right off the bat, Paul gives us a command. The command is pretty straightforward, respectful submission. Now, let's be honest. Some of you heard the word submission and you shuddered a little. Ugh. Submission is a dirty word in our culture. It's associated, you'll hear people from certain sides say, oh, it's a patriarchy, down with the patriarchy, submission is bad. Like it's, listen, it, submission isn't bad, it's a misunderstood word. And just because something is abused doesn't mean it's wrong. Like, you've all had bad pizza, you've all been to bad po- hotels, did you stop eating pizza? Do you stop going to hotels? Just because something is abused and misused doesn't mean it's wrong. In fact, submission is a good thing. People who abuse submission in the name of authority are wicked people. Let me define submission for you. It is this. It is willingly placing yourself under the authority and direction of another. You see it right in the word, right? Sub. You guys know, you remember your uh, English grammar? Sub means under. Submission, you're under the mission. We'll talk about that mission in a little bit. You're putting yourself under the mission of somebody else. You're letting them lead. You're going where they go. Ray Ortland, in a phenomenal book called the, Gospel, or the Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, says this, The opposite of a submissive spirit is an unsatisfiable demandingness, a fault-finding resistance, a tiresome fretfulness. And then he quotes Proverbs twenty seven fifteen: a constant dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. Submission is the opposite of that. Submission is a good thing. You want to know how I know? Because God commands it, and he only commands what is good for you. So Paul could have said, hey, wives, submit your husbands, and then thanks, have a nice day, see you later. Wow, that's tough. But he doesn't do that. He, he encourages you and he strengthens you by doing this. First, he gives you a model to follow. And that model is Christ in the church. Did you see that? Look at verse 23. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife. And here it is. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his is himself its savior. He says, Christ is the head. Headship. There's another scary, dirty word in our culture. Submission and headship. I'm getting you twice in like two minutes. This is good stuff. Listen, headship is also good. It's a good thing to have someone at the head. Hierarchy is a good thing. In fact, what, you know what Paul's doing here? He's actually referencing something he talked about a whole chapter earlier. Look in your eye, with your eyes back to chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. He's referencing this verse. He says, rather, and he's speaking to the church here, how they're supposed to act towards one another, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So he's saying as Christ is the head of the church, we all get that picture now. Husbands are the head of the home, so a wife needs to submit in the same way the church submits to its head. But something that's even more important here is the tense of the verb. Did you notice that? This is where English grammar is super important, kids. Pay attention. It says the husband or Christ is the head. Is. Meaning not should be or ought to act as. It's the actual design in marriage. When you stood before the pastor... And you put rings on each other's fingers and you committed to this thing called marriage before people, before God. You signed up for this structure. It's the design. And when you decide not to live under that structure, you're not changing it. You can't change the design. It was instituted by God. You're not rearranging it. You're functioning outside of it. Kurt, come here. You're just getting comfortable too. I saw that. Watch this, okay? Yeah, you can see on there, it's fine. This is Kurt's head. This is Kurt's body. Watch what happens when I move Kurt's head. Where does his body go? With his head. head. You know what happens if Kurt's body decides not to go where Kurt's head goes? We have a little uh, Sleepy Hollow situation. Go sit down. That's what we're talking about here. The wife goes where the head goes because that's the design. That's how it was built. But not only is Christ the head of the church, Christ is the savior of the church. Did you see that? He himself is its savior. You remember the first half of the book that I just told you about of Ephesians, what it's all about? That's what Paul's calling back here. He's saying, hey, all that stuff I talked about, I'm summing it up with this word, savior. That's who Jesus is for the church. How could the church not submit to its Savior? Look at all that He's done for her. Why would you not follow her, Him? And He's saying, "Wives submit the same way." It's like uh, in Toy Story. Remember when uh, Buzz Lightyear saved all the aliens, the little alien children, the Squeaky Guys? And what did they say? "You have saved us. We are eternally grateful." Right? You remember that? It's we get that concept. And Paul is saying, Wives, submit to your husbands that way, at that level. I'm not saying your husband saved you, and that's not what Paul's saying. But because Christ saved you, you follow your husband. That's the model. Now, he doesn't just give us a model, but he also gives us a method. He tells us how it's done. It's pretty simple. In verse 22, The very first verse, he says, You submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So when you're submitting to your husbands, you are submitting to God. It's the same language he uses over in Colossians 3.23 when he's talking to employees and their bosses or slaves and their masters. You work for them as for the Lord. So when you submit to your boss and you obey your boss, you're actually obeying God. That's what Paul is saying here. When you obey and submit to your husband, you're submitting to God. And he says, in everything, in verse twenty-four, you submit to your husband everything. What that means is there's no part of your life kept separate or hidden from your husband. You don't have this little section over here that my husband's the head of everything, but this little part over here, he doesn't he doesn't get this. It's all there. It's all his. I mean you can admit, I'm gonna let you admit this. This is hard. And I could say this is hard because we live in the West, where in America in 2021, where we're very up with women's rights and down with men who are pigs and slobs. And some of that's true about the men's stuff. Uh, Right? It's hard. But it's hard because our flesh doesn't like to submit. But Paul doesn't leave you hanging. Because, built in this model of Christ in the church, is the motivation and the momentum for you to get going, for you to do this. Why do I say that first? Is this? You can submit to your husband, right? Because Christ is the Savior of the church. You ready for this? You are the church, Christ is your Savior. See, submission is only possible through the gospel because if you didn't have a redeemed heart, if your heart wasn't saved and God wasn't sanctifying you, your desire, go back to Genesis 3, would be for your husband. And that doesn't mean I want my husband. It means I want my husband's position. If your heart wasn't redeemed, this would be a real struggle. You need the gospel to redeem your heart to be able to do this. And with Christ as your savior and head, you can follow even a sinful husband. only possible the gospel, that, the gospel also gives you the ability to forgive. I'm going to tell you right now, this, this is going to be really hard for you. Your husband's going to fail you. He's going to mess up. He probably did this morning. You told him to wear a different shirt and he didn't care, right? No, for real, he, he, he's going to fail you. He's going to take things from you. He's going to take your dignity. He's going to make you feel worthless at times. He's not going to make you feel beautiful and and loved. He's going to take things from you you can never repay because he's a sinner. But think about this you were an enemy of God. You hated him, you didn't want him. And he chose you and he said, I love you, I forgive you. And you want to know something else? He did the same thing for your husband. If God can forgive your husband's sins, if God can forgive your sins, do you think you can forgive your husband's sins? For his failures? And it's only if we trust the gospel can that happen. Now, listen to me. I'm I'm not saying that God approves of abusive and wicked husbands. Sinful behavior is wrong. And if you're in an abusive situation, It is not okay, and you need to seek help. And you're like, ah, Drew, I don't know where to even start. Start by coming here. Come to us. Come to the pastors. Tell us we want to help. It is not okay. This is not an excuse to submit to a husband who is wicked. Listen, submission does not mean you follow your husband into sin. It does not mean you keep your mouth shut and have no opinion. Submission does not mean you do not confront your husband when he is in sin. That is not what submission is. But it does mean he does get the final say, if it's not sin. It does mean you give him deference, because he's the leader. And it does mean you follow his leadership. I'm going to close on the section about wives for this quote from John Piper. He says this about submission. Submission is the divine calling. You see that divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It's the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. It is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take the initiative in our family. I am glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish in the relationship when you are passive, and I have to make sure the family works. That's Submission. And it's submission driven by the gospel. So wives, I want you to strive to be a gospel-driven wife. All right, guys, you knew this was coming. Time to pick on you. Because I love you. I want men now to strive to be a gospel-driven husband. Wives, you need to be gospel-driven. Wives, husbands, you need to be gospel-driven husbands. We get this from verse 25. Let's keep reading. 525. 525. Paul goes on to say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's our next command. This is the command for the husbands, which I'm calling sacrificial love. Now, unlike submission, love is a celebrated word today. We all love love. Love is great. Love is everywhere. Um, Love is love. I saw it on a sun once. I saw it on a T-shirt. I thought that was the most non-statement I've ever heard. It's like saying water is water. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Right? All you need is love. Love is all you need. But listen, love today is probably the most misunderstood word. Because love is not about a feeling. Now, I want you to have lovely feelings for your spouse. I want you to have romantic feelings about yourselves. But listen, feelings are important, but you can love when you don't feel like it. That's how I know it's not a feeling. Let me give you a definition of love. This is it. Love is acting toward another in a way that is best for them. In fact, Jamie often says here that love means you before me. The key phrase in that definition I gave you is is the phrase best for them. But here's the thing. Because we hear this a lot. and like our, our world grabs onto this like you need to do what's you need to love me and what's best for me. That's like the whole mantra of the movement on the left about love is you need to let other people you need to love them by letting them do what they want to do, what's best for them. listen. we have to remember that neither you nor the other person gets to decide what's best. God's word decides what is best for someone. What is best for them is to live a life in love with God, loved by God, and in obedience to his word. So your love for somebody must be about that. Love is not quite as interested in making someone happy as it is in making someone holy. So when you practice sacrificial love, that is the love that you're after. Paul is very gracious to husbands and not just, again, batting over the head and saying, do this without giving them help. And he gives a model. And the model's the same it's Christ in the church. Paul gives us this model by reminding us how Christ does this for the church, right? He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And He takes it a step further in even more profound language in verses 20 and 30. Jump down there. He says this, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. The church, we know, is the body of Christ. We just talked about this. We read back in Ephesians 4 a couple of minutes ago that the church is the body of Christ. And this is the Paul. the connection that Paul is making. Christ is the head and the church is the body. Husbands are the head and wives are the body. Okay, this is a mind-blowing reality. We have to wrap our heads around. Okay, you, husbands and wives, are one flesh. That's not poetic language. That's literal. You belong to him. She belongs to you. When you threw those rings on each other's fingers and looked all lovey-dovey into each other's eyes and made promises to each other. It was more than a legal document that you signed and the government says, okay, now you're married. A profound, to use Paul's language, a profound mystery occurred there. Two people, two distinct individuals, somehow, some way in the, in the plan of God have now become one person. And you don't lose your identities, but you're still one. I love that Paul doesn't pull this out of thin air. It's not some idea that he's like, hey, this sounds cool. verse 31, what does it say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. Do you know what he means by that? Why he's doing that? you know where that comes from? Genesis chapter 2 saying this was the design all along this is how marriage just is it's what happens you don't make it happen it is what happens and he's saying that's the relationship of christ in the church so that's your model and then he tells us how to work it out and that's the method the method is how we do this what does it look like in action we alluded to this just a minute ago. He says first in verse 25, you do it by laying down your life. Now, this isn't a general life, just giving up yourself all the time. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to do whatever my wife wants because that's contrary to what we just learned, right? You're supposed to lead. You're not a doormat. That would be passivity. Laying down your life is an active work. It's done in the context of leadership and headship, and it's toward a specific purpose. There's a goal in laying down your life. This is what it is. Look at verses 26 and 27. He says, Christ laid down his life that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what it's saying to you, husbands. You lay down your life every day to sanctify your wife. To make her holy, to make her pure and lovely. Like, I thought Christ does that. Yes. Yes, it does. But every act that you do for your wife ought to help her grow into Christ's likeness Listen, husbands, you are the discipler of your wife. To quote Ray Ortlund again, he puts it this way, a Christ-like husband makes his wife's burden lighter. He enjoys serving her as her lover and her provider and her defender, like Christ with his church. But even more deeply, beneath the Christ-like behavior, biblical headship flows out of the mind of Christ. Our Savior's own mentality becomes visible, I love this, becomes visible in a Christian husband cheerfully taking responsibility to lead provide for, and protect his wife. That's what it means to lay down your life. And I can hear it now because I've said it myself, right? I can hear the objections. Well, Drew, that, that might mean uh, that I, I, I don't get to go uh, to bowling club this week. That might mean I have to say uh, no to this thing that I want to buy, that new drone that just came out. It's so cool, but she wants to buy this. And Listen. You might have to say no to a lot of things. You might have to say no to that promotion. You might have to say no to going to that event. You may have to say no to watching what you want to watch on movie night. Yes. But you say no because it will make her life brighter and her burdens lighter. That's why you do it, because you know it will bring her to a place where she is more like Jesus. You lay down your life. That's verse 25. He also gives us two more directions in verse 29. If you look at verse 29 with me, he says, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. So we have this word nourish. The meaning of the word "nourish" here is to to rear or nurture, or develop or, or bring up. It's the same word that's actually used if, um, a couple of verses later, Ephesians six four, where it says, "Do not provoke your children, but bring them up." So it's this it's this building up, this raising up. Not that you're raising your wife like you raise your children, right? But it's it's helping her thrive in life. It's helping her be fully alive, not run down and despondent. It, it's not helping her find her true self. That's all the rage these days. you got to go find your true self. That's not your goal. Your goal is to help her find her identity in Christ. That's what you're raising her up and training her and helping her learn to do. You. you help her find her sense of security and worth and dignity as a wife, as a mother, as a woman, and most importantly, as a daughter of God. That's your job. You feed her truth. You feed her grace. You help her heart feel full. And for crying out loud, you tell her she's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. And no one compares to her every day. You remind her how much she is loved by you and how much she's loved by her Savior. That's what it means to nourish. And he also says, cherish. So nourish are like your actions. Those are the actions you're taking. Your cherishing is the attitude in which you do it. In. And the, the idea here is a, a comfort or warmth, a, a softening. The closest word in uh, our English language is probably heartwarming. So you have a, a softness and a gentleness towards her. She, you treat her in a way that she melts when she is near you. She feels safe. My husband is for me. He's on my side. I don't have to worry that he's not delighted in me. You esteem and love no one else more than her, not even your own children or your own mother. She is first. She never has to doubt that she is only second to your love for God. My wife and I uh, started a garden this year. Um, We are a brownish shade of green thumb. Uh, but we're figuring out. But I've learned a lot about gardening, right? You don't just plant a seed and hope that it pops up, right? You have to nourish and cherish it, which means we have to give it the right amount of fertilizer. It means I have to give it the right amount of water. It means if a storm's coming, I gotta make sure everything's staked properly so the wind doesn't blow my plants over. I lost a wonderful tomato plant that way, right? You gotta care for it every single day and watch it. You're pulling weeds, and you can't just go willy-nilly yanking eat. Because if you yank a weed that's near a root, you're going to rip up your plant with it. So there's this care and nurturing as you care for your garden. That's the idea of how you care for your wife. Now looking at this list, many if not most husbands here are overwhelmed. You may even feel guilt and shame. Because you don't do this well, and you ask yourself, how are sinful, weak men like me supposed to accomplish this? Well, the motivation and momentum for this is found in the gospel. We have two gospel truths this morning. There's lots I could point out, but two in particular. So Paul was talking about all these things that Christ did for the church. Do you remember who's part of the church? You are. Christ did all these things for you. Christ laid down his life for you, so you can lay down your life for your wife. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. So you don't need to manipulate your wife or sneak behind your wife or overpower your wife or fight with your wife to get your comfort, your security, your pleasure, your approval. You don't need to get your wife out of the way of those things because it's not about her. You have all those in Christ. He's given you everything you need so you can give and give and give and give to your wife because you're never going to run out when your life is hidden with Christ. You have everything you need in him. Go back and read Ephesians 1 and 2. You have so much in Christ. You need to stop expecting your wife to do those things for you. You need to stop getting upset when she doesn't or she gets in the way of them. You need to find those things in Christ. And listen, remember when I said that you're going to fail? You're going to (laughs) fail. But that's literally the reason Jesus came. He came and died for your failures, rose again, and has forgiven you. For every time you didn't love your wife like Christ, Jesus, Jesus died for that. What about when your wife fails you? What about when she doesn't submit? Did Christ forgive you? Did Christ forgive her? You think that he can give you the power to forgive too? Husbands strive for to be husbands who dis, who are pursuing your wife and being a gospel-driven husband. Last is this. I want to end with this. I want you together to strive for a gospel displaying marriage. I want you to strive for a gospel displaying marriage. Where do I get that from? I get it from verse, this is 32 and 33. Let's look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. Paul gets to the end of all this discussion. He says, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. He says, this mystery is profound. Now, in the Bible, when you hear people or writers talk about the mystery, particularly Paul, he uses this law. It's not something that's unknown. If it was unknown, we wouldn't be able to talk about it, right? A mystery is something that was not known before, but is now revealed. It was hidden, but now we see it. And this marriage thing is a mystery, a profound mystery that Paul now gets. And what does he get? He gets what marriage is about. And this is what marriage is about. It's not about you at all your marriage to each other is not about you your marriage does not exist to bring you pleasure it does not exist to bring you comfort it does not exist to bring you security it does not exist to bring you approval none of that is the purpose for your marriage now i want you to have those things in your marriage god wants you to have those things in marriage those are wonderful things but that's not why it exists they overflow from a godly marriage, but they're not the reason. This is the reason for marriage. Your marriage is meant to display the gospel. That's what he's saying. The whole time. Did you know what the Bible starts with marriage, right? Adam and Eve get married. And it finishes with a marriage. Christ in the church. And Paul is saying that was the point all along. It was pointing to that event. And you read the whole Testament. It talks about God pursuing his wayward bride. Read the book of Hosea, a beautiful illustration of a wayward bride and a husband constantly forgiving and forgiving, picturing God forgiving his wayward people, bringing them back to himself. The whole storyline of scripture is about Jesus pursuing his bride. It's a love story. And your small little love stories that you enact every single day are about that story. Marriage isn't a human construct. It wasn't made up by humans to get some tax benefits. It was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden. And this is why Christians make such a big deal about marriage. You wonder, well, how do we fight so much for the sanctity of marriage? This is why. Because it's the illustration of the greatest truth in the history of the world that God has come to rescue his bride, his one true love. And every time we mar that up, we distort and we show a messed up picture of that story. One last time from Ray Ortland on this matter, he says the eternal love story is why God created the universe and why God gave us marriage in Eden and why couples fall in love and get married in the world today. Every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, they are reenacting the biblical love story whether they realize it or not. The Son of God stepping down, out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride as his very heart and body with his inmost, sincerest love so that he can fit her to be with him forever. That dramatic super reality is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. It is a huge deal. That is the mission of your marriage. So what does that mean practically? It means all these commands that, we've, that Paul has been giving, all the things we've been talking about are not ultimately about you to have a super happy marriage, a fulfilling marriage, as much as I want that for you. All these commands are about you showing the world what Jesus' his love for his bride is like. Well, how do we flesh it out then? Well, you do it when you're together. When you're together, do you interact with one another in a way that people see the relationship of Christ in the church? Do you interact with one another um, in front of others, your neighbors, your family members, your own kids? When they see you interact with one another, is that a picture of Christ in the church and the relationship there? I think sometimes it's even more tough when you're apart, when you're with. The other moms in your homeschool group or at ballet or in the pickup line, how do you talk about your husband? What do you say about him? Do you lift him up? Do you talk about him as the church talks about Christ? Or do you tear him down? Husbands, when you're at the water cooler or on the golf course or on that hunting trip, how do you talk about your wife? How do the other guys see you interact with other women? Would they know that your wife is your cherished treasure? How about when you're alone? Nobody else is around. You're one flesh, so you're not actually alone, fun fact. But what do you do with your eyes when you're alone? Where do you go in your mind when you're alone? What do you do with your money when you're alone? What relationships do you maintain? How do you spend your time? Do all those things point to a husband and a wife who are passionate about displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ in their relationship? Or are you passionate about yourself? Your Lives as a couple display the greatest love story of all time. And that love story gives you the power and the ability to put on that display. We need to strive as a church to have gospel displaying marriages. And it is through the power of gospel that we can do that. Let's pray. God, I thank you Thank you that you loved us, your church, the wayward people that we are. As the old hymn says, we are so prone to wander, but you are the loving husband who keeps chasing after us, bringing us back, making us beautiful through your death, burial, and resurrection. God, and that is the story we want to tell the world. We want others to be part of this. We want others to be part of the bride of Christ, to know the joy of having Jesus as our Savior and our husband for all eternity. I pray that every marriage here would put that on display in all their relationships so the world will look and be amazed how great the gospel is. And we can only do that through the power of the gospel. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Thank you, church, you are loved.